Welcome to Taiwan Report News Brief, news analysis and context from Taichung, Taiwan. I'm Donovan Smith. All right, this is part three of a three-part series, and it is based on a lecture I gave at Donghai University earlier this week. The first two parts, part one, went into the history of U.S.-Taiwan relations up to the period of cutting diplomatic relations. Part two went from the Reagan administration up through the Trump administration. This is part three, where we'll talk about 2020, the 2020 U.S. election, and the first hundred days of the Biden administration to bring us up to date. All right, now 2020 was a good year for Taiwan internationally. People were shocked at the increasing bullying of Taiwan by China, and Taiwan was recognized as a free liberal democracy. Now, this is very much in contradiction to what was going on in East Turkestan, in Hong Kong, and in other areas as China became increasingly openly belligerent and they increased their military flybys and military threatening of and gray zone tactics against Taiwan where essentially it tried to wear down Taiwan's military with frequent incursions. Taiwan also handled the pandemic very, very well. At one point, me and another guy were collecting articles on Taiwan and it reached hundreds of these articles praising Taiwan as a model for the world. We finally realized that Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs was doing the same thing. So rather than replicate the wheel, we just simply referred to their list. Taiwan also started to provide support and donations to many other countries, which was a big diplomatic win for Taiwan. And momentum builded to include Taiwan again as an observer in the World Health Assembly and to oppose the World Health Organization's stance on Taiwan, which has been dictated by Beijing. Also, President Tsai Ing-wen was picked during that year and has continued into this year, was picked on many best leaders lists of various sorts from various publications and organizations. Her international profile rose significantly as well as Taiwan's. So 2020 was a big deal for Taiwan internationally on the world stage. Also, lawmakers from around the world started to form Formosa clubs in support of Taiwan. These are similar to the Taiwan caucus in the U.S. Congress. Started in Europe, but now there's a Middle Eastern one. There's a Latin American version of it. And this is where lawmakers come together, forming a Formosa club explicitly in support of Taiwan in the EU, in the UK, in national legislatures, and so forth. Also, a lot more legislation has started appearing supporting Taiwan, most recently coming out of Flanders and Belgium and Japan being another one. Many different countries have started supporting more legislation to increase support for Taiwan. Also in 2020, a visit by the president of the Czech Senate and a delegation got a lot of attention. He famously said that I am a Taiwanese, and at the time, the Chinese foreign minister was traveling through Europe and started threatening the Czechs. Surprisingly, considering how supine the French and German governments normally are toward China, both of them gave Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, a bit of a tongue lashing over their threats to the Czech Senate. 
Also, foreign journalists often kicked out of China have started to appear in Taiwan. This is good news because traditionally, foreign journalists really didn't cover Taiwan from Taiwan. They covered it from Hong Kong or from China. And so their viewpoints were heavily skewed toward the Chinese perspective. They really didn't know what they were talking about when it came to Taiwan. And frequently, their coverage was just simply awful. Now, some of those absolutely awful journalists still remain, but overall, the quality has started to improve, including in publications like the New York Times. In the 2020 U.S. election, when I gave this lecture at Donghai, I passed out a vote and asked them in November of 2020, who did you support, Trump, Biden, or don't know? By about two to one, the students in Donghai said they supported Trump over Biden. Trump was very popular here in Taiwan because his administration had significantly increased military sales and Taiwan's profile, and especially John Bolton and Mike Pompeo had been extremely supportive of Taiwan. Among Taiwan watchers, myself and quite a few other people, some of which I've had conversations over the issue with, they split along partisan lines on the 2020 U.S. election. Those who are pro-Trump, they touted, see all the great stuff this administration did for Taiwan, which was true. Also, they made the argument against Biden that Biden will bring back all the bad people and policies from the Obama years, which is a legitimate concern. Those who are pro-Biden said that Trump is unstable and doesn't really care about Taiwan, which is also apparently true. And they said that Biden would revive alliances and work together. And everything that Biden had been saying during the campaign suggested that that would indeed also be true. At the time, the reality was I thought both were partially right. But the problem with assessing Biden was his past messaging on Taiwan was very mixed. And we really didn't know who we'd bring into the administration. We didn't know what his policies would be and his thinking on Taiwan was. So my take, which was different than apparently everyone else's, was we don't know who's going to be better. But to say that us Taiwan watchers were all nervous and watching closely when Biden was elected was an understatement. To our pleasant surprise, things have started to look quite good. Right before President Biden was inaugurated, Antony Blinken had a phone call with President Tsai, and then very quickly after that was officially nominated to be Secretary of State in the new administration. Then Taiwan Representative Xiaobi Kim was invited to the presidential inauguration personally and directly by the U.S. government. In past, Taiwan representatives have attended, but only as the guest of an invited guest. In this case, Taiwan's representative to the U.S. was treated like an actual ambassador. And the appointments that Biden have made have been mostly pro-Taiwan. And they include people like Blinken, who for Secretary of State, Austin and at Defense, and Sullivan over at the NSC. He's the National Security Advisor. Now, here's what's very interesting is during the Senate confirmations for Antony Blinken as Secretary of State and Lloyd Austin for Secretary of Defense and comments at the time from Jake Sullivan at the NSA, 
is that all of their comments echoed each other, including using very similar language. So, for example, during the Senate confirmation hearings, both Blinken and Austin, when asked about a potential Chinese attack on Taiwan, both used some variations of that would be a mistake. If I recall, it was serious mistake and grave mistake. So what this told me is that Taiwan was not an afterthought to the incoming Biden team. The incoming Biden team had clearly coordinated, thought about the issue carefully, and were working with each other to present a united front, pardon the pun, on the issue to make sure that they were all on the same page. So that emphasized to me the importance of Taiwan to the incoming Biden administration. So that was a very, very good sign. Not many people picked up on that. When Biden took office, much of the Trump-era policies on China and Taiwan have since remained in place. They just simply didn't change them, for the most part. We'll get back to that in a second. You'll notice that consistency of language and that consistency of messaging on Taiwan has remained consistent, using words like, our relationship with Taiwan is rock solid, and we believe we steadfastly support Taiwan. They use this kind of language. President Biden even used rock solid. Also, Biden included Taiwan in his call to Xi Jinping. We don't actually know what was discussed. The way that the White House and state spun it is that he was very tough with Xi Jinping. But the description of the call was very short by both the White House and state, and it was a two-hour phone call. So we really don't know what went on there. However, let's assume for now that the state and the White House's summaries were correct. Also, the U.S. has been continuing with Pompeo's shift to referring to One China Policy, Taiwan Relations Act, and Six Assurances. Again, the emphasis there is that the priority relationship is with Taiwan, not with Beijing. Biden also sent the Chris Dodd delegation to visit Taiwan. Chris Dodd is an old friend of Biden's from the administration, which some media outlets refer to as his best friend. He was joined by a bipartisan group, which included two ex-deputy secretaries of state from both sides of the aisle. Also, Xiaobi Kim, the Taiwan representative, visited U.S. officials on State Department grounds. And more ambassadors are meeting their U.S. counterparts in both U.S. embassies and in Taiwan's representative offices, most recently from France. And the U.S. ambassador to Palau visited Taiwan directly with the Palau delegation recently. On the military side, the Biden administration has been continuing the revival of the Quad with Japan, Australia, and India. That looks like it's continuing to move forward and strengthen. Navies from the UK, Germany, France, Canada, I believe, have come together in the South China Sea to send a message to China. And the U.S. government has been openly discussing with Australian and Japanese militaries about what to do in case of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. That's a big deal. Because in the past, we can presume they probably did talk about these kinds of things. But now it's open that this discussion is going on between the U.S., Australia, and the U.S. and Japan. And that this is making it an open issue 
makes it clear that they're starting to coordinate and starting to plan. Just recently, talk of new upcoming military sales broke, although the articles have not been confirmed. The U.S. Coast Guard and Taiwan's Coast Guard have signed a Memorandum of Understanding on setting up a working group. This is quite important as China recently put in a law which allows their Coast Guard commanders to essentially fire on what they consider anything of threat within the waters that are considered PRC territory, which includes all of Taiwan, the Senkakus or the Diaoyutai Islands, which are administered by Japan, and the entire South China Sea. So that's quite threatening because essentially these Coast Guard ships in a lot of cases are essentially warships and that they are now authorized to open fire even in Taiwan waters. This is very alarming so that the U.S. Coast Guard and the Taiwan Coast Guard want to coordinate is a very good sign. It may also open the door for U.S. Coast Guard ships, because it's not officially military, to make port calls in Taiwan. So all of this has continued the later part of the Trump administration, making the strategic ambiguity, they're hinting that it's not quite so ambiguous. However, some questions about the Biden administration remain. There were mixed reviews on when Joe Biden met with the Japanese prime minister that they delayed coming out with a common statement for an hour, which is really unusual. And keep in mind, these guys are pretty busy. And a lot of speculation is that it was over the language on Taiwan. In spite of the defense minister's meeting and the two plus two meeting, which included the secretary of state, this document didn't specifically refer to Taiwan. Instead, it referred to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. People who are positive on this came out and said, oh, this is great. This is the first time since 1969 that a presidential statement referred to the defense of Taiwan or peace within the Taiwan Strait, that they both had a message related to Taiwan. Critics of it said that the language coming out of this was the barest minimum and most bland that it could possibly be. Secretary of State Sullivan has also said, quote, what we would like to see is stability in cross-strait relations and no effort to unilaterally change the status quo. That means that the U.S. is not going to support, for example, Taiwan declaring a Taiwan Republic. Also, strategic ambiguity is to stay, and the U.S. is worried about Taiwan declaring an independent republic. Quote, now this is from Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence, speaking at a hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee when asked about China's possible reaction to the U.S. adopting an explicit commitment to defend Taiwan. She said, the Chinese would find this deeply destabilizing. It would solidify Chinese perceptions that the U.S. is bent on constraining China's rise, including through military force, and would probably cause Beijing to aggressively undermine U.S. interests worldwide. When she was further asked by committee chair Jack Reed whether a shift from strategic ambiguity would precipitate a surge toward Taiwan's, quote, further separation from China, Haynes replied, I think that's possible. I would say that already Taiwan is hardening to some extent towards independence as we're watching essentially what happened in Hong Kong, and I think that's an increasing challenge, she added. In other words, 
the U.S. does not want Taiwan to rock the boat or to change the status quo. They don't want to back away from strategic ambiguity because they're afraid of the response from China. Secretary of State Blinken has restored some of the State Department rules on contact with Taiwanese that Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo lifted. Pompeo lifted all restrictions on U.S. government contact with Taiwanese. Blinken has restored some. On the good side, they appear to be nowhere near as restrictive as they used to be. However, they were not made public, so we don't actually know what's in them. It's assumed that they are pretty minor and very limited in scope. The Financial Times has been reporting that while U.S. State Department and government officials can visit the Taiwan Representative Office at Twin Oaks in Washington, D.C., they're not allowed to attend, quote, special holidays, presumably Double Ten Day. It's also assumed that in the guidelines that there are no president, vice president, secretary of state, or secretary of defense level meetings allowed. Now, another question is, considering that Tsai did took a big domestic risk politically and expended much capital on lifting the ban on U.S. pork imports containing ractopamine, it's still very disappointing that the Biden U.S. trade representative, like her Trump predecessor, has still said nothing about it, and that up to this point, there's been still nothing coming out of that office about pursuing a free trade agreement with Taiwan. To end, I want to talk about, and I talked about in one of the earlier ones, about the difference between Democrats and Republicans. In the earlier part in the series, I talked about traditionally how Republicans have been much stronger in support of Taiwan or the Republic of China, and Democrats less so. In recent years, starting under the Trump administration and continuing into the Biden administration, both have become much more supportive of Taiwan. It remains that Republicans prefer to try wording that is much stronger than their Democratic counterparts. And we know that the Democrats managed to get on one bipartisan legislation that was passed. They managed to axe words that's explicitly called for a free trade agreement with Taiwan. That being said, This is now a difference of degree. Both are supportive of Taiwan, whereas before Democrats maybe were, maybe weren't, but usually not very much if they were. Now, as for their views, the U.S. government views on the KMT versus the DPP, as I noted in a previous part, that the DPP was actually considered a troublemaker during the Chen Suibian era, and the U.S. State Department appears to have tried to signal to the Taiwan voting public in 2012 that they thought that Tsai Ing-wen was not a good choice. It appears now that this has changed, and it appears that the U.S. government now actually trusts the DPP more than the KMT. They have been meeting less with the KMT directly, seem to be kind of ruling out the KMT, and are not as friendly to the KMT but have been much more active in meeting with top DPP government officials. President Tsai Ing-wen has done an excellent job of making sure the U.S. government feels that she is trustworthy, the Taiwan government is reliable, is not trying to change the status quo, and so on and so forth. All right, I'm sorry that my voice has been a bit hoarse, but I hope you enjoyed this three-part series. And of course, tune in next time. If you possibly can, join us as a patron on patreon.com slash Taiwan Report. It's a big deal to us here at Taiwan Report to help keep this project going. 
And of course, if you're on Facebook or on YouTube, be sure to hit like or subscribe. Tune in next time. Tune in next time. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. Hey, I'm the Taiwan girl. I like my Taiwan girl.